morning, everybody. Sun shining today, huh? It's awesome. Okay, we're going to get into Revelation. We've been in this book now for a couple of months. If you're uh, a guest or a visitor, you notice that our approach to this book is, um, well, you'll see that our approach to this book is the way we approach the rest of the Bible. Um, rather than looking at this book and making all these fanciful interpretations on how uh, Revelation would connect to our world, um, we're going to look at how Revelation first was a letter written to seven specific churches for a very specific purpose. So it's written to that world. And we are understanding this book in light of um, what the purpose of this letter for that world, what it might mean for our world today. Um, we have uh, now made it to the part of Revelation where we're looking at the seven uh, churches to which it's written, and uh, we've made it to Revelation 3 to the church of Sardis, so let's turn our Bibles to that right now. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. If you have a blue Bible like mine, Revelation 3 is on 992. Let me just say this while you're turning there. If you've been here for the last two teachings on the, on the uh, churches to, I think, uh, Pergamum and Thyatira, they've been hard. And some of the comments that people have given to me have been, I don't want to come to church to feel so guilty. Um, I just want to say this about guilt. Guilt is a very good emotion. I have felt much guilt in my life. I would even label some of it shame. And I can't tell you how God has used guilt and shame to cause me to repent. Because here's what we as Christians have. We have the best place to bring our guilt and shame. We get to bring our guilt and shame to a God, a Father, who's on the porch waiting for us to come home and say, I'm sorry, so he can just wrap his arms around us. And we can know that everything that we've done wrong, every way that we've messed up our life, we have a God who's so ready and excited to forgive us. And so I don't want to become a wimpy church that believes in a wimpy God. Where because of our guilt and shame, we have to lower what, who God is and what God is calling us to be. I want to have the guts and the courage to listen to all that God has for us and to see it. And if it makes us feel guilty, it just gives us an opportunity to repent. Okay, so that's a little bit of, of pastoral stuff to you guys, okay? And now listen, I, I say all this because now we're getting in a letter today where there is not one good thing said about this church. <laughs> and I want to remind us too, these, these aren't just the words, just the words of the Bible or of Paul. They're the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus. Okay. Revelation 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. To the angel, or maybe the pastor, because the word angel means messenger, to the pastor of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Not you, Caesar, and how you depict yourself on your coins holding the seven stars. The true Son of God speaks. I know your works. You have a reputation 
of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Take hold of it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night at an hour that you do not know. Yet you do have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. To the one who is victorious. And I just want to say this right now. I was raised in a tradition that one of the chief doctrines was once saved, always saved. And I don't have time to get into this right now, but Revelation has messed with that. To the one who overcomes, as if we might not all overcome. In fact, it keeps getting even uh, more detailed. To the one who is victorious, who overcomes, will, like them, be dressed in white. And I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. And this sounds so like Jesus. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is God's word. Okay, I think there's some background um, that I think pertains to, to this city. I don't just give background for the sake of giving background. Uh, but let me just start with a PowerPoint of how scholars would, um, taking the archaeology that we have. Uh, this is Sardis, and you can see it's quite an impressive city. Every Greco-Roman city had three parts to it. Uh, you had your polis, which is your city that's, that's at the base on the ground. Uh, what this uh, doesn't show is the other part of the city called the necropolis. Uh, the necropolis, the burial of the dead, was very important to the Romans. So they had a whole part of their city uh, designated for that, and that would be to the right. And then on that hill up there, uh, and this is an Im impressive uh, hill, would be the Acropolis. Acro means hill, polis means city, so it means city on a hill. Now, I like this artist's uh, rendering of Sardis because if you look at the Acropolis, there's nothing there. And, and the reason why there's nothing there, because typically this is where the most important buildings are, uh, the temples, um, the, where the most important people of the city live. Um, in, six, in 17 AD, an earthquake hit this region. In fact, the historian Pliny, Pliny said that this is the greatest earthquake known to mankind. It was a 10 on the Richter scale. And what happened to the Acropolis is one part of the Acropolis literally collapsed uh, behind the mountain. Another part of the Acropolis collapsed right on the polis. And so in a moment, the polis turned into a necropolis, um, a vibrant polis turned into city of the dead. It was just literally... At, at night, like that, boom, 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 and much of the city was buried. And then another part of the, of the Acropolis remained. You talk about an apocalypse. Now, Revelation 16 says this about one of the acts of, of God's judgment Revelation 16, verse 17, the seventh angel pour, poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice of the throne saying, it's done. And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, pearls of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like had ever occurred since mankind has been on earth. And so tremendous was the quake that the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations and this city of the nations collapsed. Now, imagine 
being a church in the city of Sardis. And you get this letter. And you get to this part in the letter where it describes this. And again, this is why I want us to be careful to not just run this book to our world, but to first understand that it had real meaning to its world. So Sardis, at the time of the writings, it's a city of about 100,000 people, which is a very large, significant city for that day. Um, It's a city that is right on the Royal Road. In fact, the Royal Road is that probably one of the most important highways in the ancient world, which connects the east with the west. In fact, um, it was terminus. Um, This road started in east in in, in Persia um, and and came all the way west, and it ended at Sardis. And and then at Sardis, the road split, where part of the road went to uh, Ephesus and the other part um, to Pergamum. Very important road. The whole world traveled on this. The whole world traveled on this road. Um, Sardis is also more inland than some of the cities that we looked at. It's not a coastal city. It's not a trendy city like L.A. or New York. It's a very historical city um, that's still flavored by its ancient past. And its ancient past is significant because before the Persians came and conquered this region and the Greeks and the Romans a little bit later, Sardis is the capital of a kingdom called the Lydian Kingdom. And uh, let me just show it. There's um, a map of the Lydian Kingdom. The Lydian Kingdom existed at the same time of the kings in the Old Testament, from the time of about David to Hezekiah, to just date it. Now, its most powerful king was Croesus. We get a phrase, uh, as rich as Croesus, because Croesus became the richest man in the world. And the way Croesus became rich is gold flowed through one of the local rivers, and his miners um, found a way to collect this gold. They would use the fleece of a lamb, put it in the river, collect the gold, from which we get the golden fleece, that whole phrase. He collected the gold, and he stored the gold up in that Acropolis um, in what was, in that day, the most impenetrable fortress in the world. So you can imagine like how safe and secure Croesus and his people felt in the Acropolis of Sardis. But then the Persians came. And Cyrus the Great with his great army surrounded the mountain. But they still felt secure and safe. This, this fortress is impenetrable. Until one day, a helmet fell off one of the sentries who was uh, on the wall, and, and the helmet went tumbling down the mountainside, and one of the Persian soldiers noticed that a little bit later in the day, that same helmetless soldier, he saw him halfway down the hill, and then a little bit later at the base of the hill, and he thought to himself, there must be a secret passageway. And sure enough... That night, the Persians found the secret passageway, and while the Lydians were fast asleep, the mighty Sardis fell in the night. Now, if you don't think uh, lightning can't strike twice, this almost same story happened 200 years after this, because now the Greeks want to retake the city, and the city is impenetrable, the fortress is impenetrable, but... Uh, the Greeks at the base of the hill noticed that the, the, the soldiers on top threw over a dead donkey um, over the wall. And then the vultures gathered there. And the vultures stayed there for a long time. They realized, you know what? Vultures don't go where people are. So this must be a point in the wall that's unguarded. And so that night, they made the trek up the hill, saw that the wall was unguarded, While Sardis, again, was fast asleep, Sardis fell. Now, this is all part of the legend, the reputation of Sardis. Now, hear the letter. These are the words to him who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars. I know your deeds, your works. You have a reputation a good reputation of being alive. 
but you're dead. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hang on to it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief at an hour that you do not know. I will come to you. You have a reputation, Church of Sardis. A reputation for being alive. But I see your heart. You're dead. You're dead. Ouch. It sounds like Jesus' words to the Pharisees, doesn't it? Where he says, you, you on the outside look like whitewashed tombs, but, but on the inside you're full of death. Jesus doesn't do hypocrisy. Doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't do fake. Jesus has eyes that look right in because what Jesus does is heart. Heart. And it seems in this letter that Jesus is using the reputation of this city, Sardis, and and he's applying it to the church of Sardis, and he's saying, you know what, church? Your reputation, just like this city in times past, it's so good. In fact, you're up there, you're in your fortress, you have all your comforts, you have all your gold stored there, you're feeling secure, you're away from the world, just waiting for heaven to happen. I mean, I want us to see this picture. Go back to that PowerPoint. Do you see that fortress, that city on a hill? Because I don't know of a metaphor that better fits Grand Rapids. Here's the deal. I've lived a lot of my adult life outside of Grand Rapids. I've lived in Indianapolis. I've lived in Chicagoland. And here's what living away uh, taught me is that actually Grand Rapids has a reputation in our, in our nation. It has a reputation of being the new Jerusalem. That's, that's the kind of phrase that people uh, use when they speak about Grand Rapids. I mean, look at us. We have almost a church on every corner. Um, we have some of the most uh, prominent Christian colleges and seminaries right here. Um, Christian publishing uh, is right here. Publishing that sends books uh, throughout the whole world. In fact, you can just take your Bible today... And, and, and look in the first few pages and see that all our Bibles were produced right here in Grand Rapids. Bibles that go throughout the whole world. We have a, a reputation. So much so that, that Billy Graham one time spoke about Grand Rapids this way. He said Grand Rapids is a sleeping giant. And here Jesus says, wake up, you are sleeping. And see, this is what comfort does. This is what riches do. This is what a fortress mentality, the effect it has on us. It lulls us to sleep spiritually. Because here's what happens. When we actually have our fortress, fortresses that are, are, are filled with gold... That, that, that give us comfort, we start to think that we have life under control. And, and, and we start to think that we don't really need God. We lose our desperation for him. And, and, and then all these comforts and, and pleasures and things that we have at our fingertips start to just slowly push God out. Where God no longer is our joy. God no longer is our comfort. God no longer is our satisfaction. Because we have all these things. And see, we're not here today to just exegete a text or, or, or learn some things. We're here to let the text exegete us. So let me ask you right now, do you have a hunger and a passion and almost a sense of desperation for God. 
David could say, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul, it pants for God. He could say, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My body longs for you. My soul is passionate for you. Can you say that today? Can your heart say that? Because God doesn't do fake. Maybe we're playing it too safe. Maybe we're too attached to our comforts. Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. And here's the surprise for me. I reflected on this. Or, I will come. It's not culture's going to come and overtake you. It's not your enemies are going to come and overtake you. Jesus says, I will come like a thief in the night. Listen, one of the things I want us to do, again, is I want us to get into the shoes of, of what it's like to be in Sardis and to be a first century Christian there. And I'll tell you what, it was tough to be a Christian in, in first century Rome. It, 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 was, it was really tough to be a Christian in first century Sardis. They, they had many reasons to run to the hills and circle the wagons and build their fortress to keep that bad pagan world out. In fact, I want to just give you a little taste of first century paganism this morning. Um, and I'm going to do my very best to keep this PG. Um, I think the words that I'm going to choose will go over any children's head. Um, so we're, we're, we're safe there, and I'll do it in very general terms. But we need, listen, let's be big boys and girls. Let's, let's have capacity understand what our brothers and sisters were up against, okay? Because who knows? We too may be up against these kinds of things. Sardis, the city, is, is the Mecca. It's the world center for the worship of this god, Kibla. In fact, let me just show you a PowerPoint of her temple. Um, that's a picture of Kibla right there. But here's her temple, or at least the ruins of it. And you can see now the Acropolis, how it exists today um, after the earthquake. But um, Kibla is a female deity, and, and the worship of Kibla goes uh, back into, deep into this region's ancient past. This is a regional, this is a local god that goes all the way back to uh, the time of Abraham. Now here's something I want us to think about, because we talk a lot about paganism. Paganism is not agnosticism or atheism. Paganism is actually having your life steeped in the gods. Where you are passionately committed to the gods. Now when you're thinking the gods, or at least the way they thought of the gods in their day, don't just think other religions as we might think of other gods today. You, you literally need to think in terms of superheroes. Because that's how they thought about the gods. The gods were like superheroes. Each god had its own story. Each god had its own special powers. Each god had its own unique function to bring blessing to a person's life. Uh, now, Kibla promised many blessings, but her big one is that she guarded the dead. Which is why every Kibla temple faced west towards the setting of the sun. However, she didn't just promise to guard the dead, she also promised to raise the dead of those who worshipped her. And that's why this temple is where it is. It's, it, it's between uh, the Acropolis, um, which is a picture of life, and it's between the Necropolis, which is a picture of of death, uh, that's where she is. She is between the living and the dead. Now, now Kibla's story, like most gods, is, is worse than any soap opera. This stuff is laughable. But here's her legend. Kibla had both male and female genitalia and was actually able to procreate on her own. She had a grandson, Addis, 
who became so infatuated with her beauty. But because Kibla needed no male, this grandson, in an ecstatic, frenzied state, unmailed himself, castrated himself, offered his organs to her in an attempt to win her affection. Think about being a father or, 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 or a grandfather um, and, and you're telling your kids the story of the God you worship for, at, at bed one night. I mean, this stuff is, is just dark. Imagine the kind of worship and, and what the expression of worship um, w- w- would entail if, if, it's, if this is the story. And again, I'll give you just a little bit of the flavor of, of the worship of Kibbalah. Um, there would be these week-long festivals uh, to honor her where the high point of the week would be this uh, procession that would run through all the streets of, of a city like Sardis in the dark of night to wild music, drums beating, people dancing erotically. The procession would be led by Kibbalah's priests and, and most ardent worshipers. They were all dressed in white robes, clashing spears and shields, with also knives in hand, because as they're processing, they're cutting themselves in different parts of their body so that crimson would just fill the whiteness of their robes. And they'd process through the city at night, eventually making their way to the temple where the historians use words like this, ecstatic, frenzied, um, orgiastic, to describe the end of the procession in the temple because it's here where a worshiper might attain the ultimate sacrifice, which in that frenzied state, they too would castrate themselves and offer their organs to Kibla. This first century paganism. This shouldn't make any follower of Christ angry. This ought to make us incredibly sad. These are tormented souls who desperately need Jesus. Now the Greeks and the Romans, when, when, when they conquered this, even they had mixed feelings toward, towards this religion. Sometimes they embraced it. Sometimes they outlawed it. Uh, the, their reason for outlawing it, it, it is because um, a Greek and a Roman, with their obsession with the human body as the standard for perfection, couldn't understand why anyone would want to mutilate their body, especially that part of it. But yet, at the same time, uh, the Greeks and the Romans also embraced Kibbala. In fact, the Romans even more than the Greeks. Um, in time, Rome's devotion to Kibbala went so deep that they ended up calling uh, Kibbala the imperial magna mater, which means the great mother of the gods. Now you can see then when hundreds of years later, uh, Roman paganism is replaced with Roman Catholicism, how all of a sudden now how do we replace this great mother? And now you can see why, why, why Mary uh, becomes so prominent within the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, the Vatican is built on a temple to Kibbalah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's just not that hard to connect some of these dots. But Kibbalah is always depicted as, as sitting between two lions. There she is. Lion to her right, lion to her left. That's her symbol, the lion. Now, now, now why do I tell you this? Well, there's also a huge Jewish population in the city of Sardis that goes all the way back to the time when the Babylonians conquered the Jewish people. Most of them were exiled to, to Babylon, but some of them, for some reason, were displaced in Sardis. And then uh, when Persia um, took over Babylon, they, they displaced even more Jews uh, in, in Sardis, which is why archaeologists have uncovered the biggest synagogue in the ancient world 
not in Jerusalem, not in the land of Israel, but in Sardis. It's, it's massive. Now what's so interesting about this synagogue, to me at least, is where it's located. Because it's pinched right between that royal road, that highway where the whole world traveled. And, and, and on the other side is a Roman gymnasium. So literally, if this is the synagogue, where that wall is right there is where the royal road is. And the wall here in our room is right now the wall connecting it, the synagogue to a Roman gymnasium. Now, gymnasium is not a place where Romans went and shot hoops. Um, a Roman gymnasium is where they did their schooling. And 90% of a Greco-Roman education was physical training. So this place was one part spa, one part university. All genders, all ages came to this place. Understand this, gymnos, the root word of gymnasium, means naked. This was a place to get naked. All the training was pretty much done in the nude. Because the Greeks and the Romans had an obsession with the body. They weren't in the nude to, for sensual reasons. They were in the nude because to them the standard of beauty is the human body. So why would you cover it up? This is a place where we are going to perfect the human body. And we're going to show it off. We're going to see how fast it can run how high it can jump, how strong it can become, and how beautiful it can be. Wow, does that sound like the Western world? Now the PowerPoint, let me show, see a PowerPoint. There's, there's the, the ruin of this huge, huge uh, gymnasium, second biggest in this region, with the biggest apps. The apps is where you walk in, and if you see those, those pillared columns... Um, in between those, those columns would have been uh, the Greco-Roman gods. But if you see the big one right in the middle, there was the god of all gods, the one who called himself Lord and God, was a statue of Caesar. In other words, this was not just a place of learning, but this was a house of worship. Our learning is done to worship Caesar. This synagogue is exactly where God's people need to be. Not up in some fortress where they are escaping the world, but rather right on Main Street, the world's Main Street, next to a university dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Now, I've been to the synagogue in Sardis three times. The first two times, I was just like, wow, this is really cool. I love where this is located. There's a reason why Crossroads is where it is, too. However, the third time I went there, I noticed something. The place where the rabbi, the teacher, would get up to speak called the Bema, on the right and on the left, huge statues of lions. And then I saw on the wall statues of eagles. Now listen, to us we're, we're comfortable with statues, but to, to, to a Jew, the, no images anywhere. You go to all the synagogues in Israel, no images. Even Herod, who called himself a Jew, but is also trying to be in bed with Rome, no images on anything he ever built. So I can't help but wonder then, are God's people, because at this time too, this is the, the, there's no separation yet between Jew and Christian. Christians are, are, are largely worshiping in, in the synagogue. Who's shaping who? Is the world, is the culture, is Kibla, is Rome shaping God's people or are God's people shaping the world? 
And see, I think this is what Jesus is also uh, saying to the church. In verse 4, he says, a few of you haven't soiled your clothes. You haven't walked in the procession. You've not stained your robes in Kibbeah. Your robes aren't stained in your culture. You've kept yourself unstained from the world. And I think Jesus then says, because you are not stained, you will walk with me. And you will walk with me in my procession in robes of white. But our big takeaway here is to see that being unstained is a big deal to Jesus. James says, pure and undefiled religion is to take care of the widow and the orphan, but also to keep yourself unstained from the world. Now here's the question, how do we do this? Do we do this by by running to to the hills? Are we to escape the world? Are we to build our fortresses, um, circle the wagons, and and keep the world out? I was at a Christmas party with with my extended relatives. And you know how these things go when you see each other once a year. You're talking our world. You're talking politics. Start talking about one of the local Christian schools. um, And one of the kids who graduated from this Christian school who had quite a reputation for being impressive person lost his life to a drug overdose. And everybody at my table was saying, see, this is what happens. We got to get out of the world. We got to get out of the world. We're, we're, we're too entrenched in the world. We're too entrenched in the world. Huh. It bite my tongue. Because I, I, I think that's our, our instinct, our instinct that when we see the world going the way our world is going, and then there starts to be casualties amongst our own, our, our immediate instinct is like we just got to retreat, we, gotta, we, we have to remove ourselves, we have to build our fortress and, and, and try to hang on to everything that we have. But I love what Jesus says in verse 2. He says to them, you know what? Your work is unfinished. It's time to get to work. We have a job to do. Because God has us on a mission. And our mission is not to escape the world. It's not to find our comfortable, secure forces that are away from the world where we can go and just wait for heaven. Years ago, we did this series called The City of God because we, we, we noticed that the Bible, you can look at it as a tale of two cities. There's a city of man, which is, is, is chaos, and oftentimes the Bible labels it Babel or Babylon um, because that's what Babel means. It means confusion. It means chaos, and, 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 and you have that city, but then there's also... Uh, this other thread that runs throughout the Bible, the city of God. And the city of God is God's people, um, oftentimes labeled as, as Jerusalem. And Jerusalem means shalom. And Jesus said to his followers, I want you to be an Acropolis. I want you to be a city set on a hill. Because this is at the heart of God's strategy right now is that he wants to have a special city, us, an alternate city, a city that is utterly distinct from the world. And if you want to know what that distinctiveness looks like, just read the Bible. But if you want the cliff notes, like I do, read the Sermon on the Mount. Get to know Matthew 5 and 7. Because you'll see that Jesus calls us to be an alternate city in, 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 in how we use our resources, how we handle our money, how we value our money, how we're to be an alternate city in how we do relationship, um, how we do marriage, how we do family, how we live out our sexuality, that, that we're to steward all of these things, these God-given gifts for God's glory to honor God and to serve the world. 
Jesus calls us to be an alternate city where the weak can come and, and find strength, where the, where the guilty can come and find and experience forgiveness, where, where, where the afflicted can come and the oppressed can come and find protection, where, where, the, where the homeless can come and find home. He wants us to be an alternate city where, where people from any and every tribe can come and form this brotherhood, where we become this family, where we value all the unique differences that we bring to the equation as God-given differences, and we treat and love each other as brothers and sisters. God wants a, an alternate city, um, a, a place where, where people can come and encounter God himself, where they can come to know him and know his love and know that both religious and irreligious, both good people and pagan people have a desperate need to know God and his gospel. And you can really sum this thing all up. This city is so different from Caesar different than Rome, different than the world, where rather than your life for me, we live as a city, our life for you. Imagine such a city. That's the church. And what God wants is not just a city that's distinct, but he says, this Acropolis, this city on a hill, it cannot be hidden. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't want you isolated from the world. I don't want you separate from the world. I don't want you to escape the world. I want you to be planted in the world on Main Street. God wants his city, the city of God, in every city, in the city of man. Right in the heart of it. And this, is, this has been his, his, his mission for his people going all the way back to the beginning. Jeremiah 29, when God's people are exiled. There they are in Babylon. They're saying, now what? And, and, and how do we live out the mission of God in, in, in this place? They just weren't used to it. They were used to living it out of um, their, their homeland. But, and so the false prophets all of a sudden start chirping. And they start saying, you know what? Just kind of. Stay on the outskirts, and in a couple of years, God's going to rectify this, and he's going to take us back to the homeland. And Jeremiah steps up into this and says, no, it's not how it's going. He says, you're going to be here for a very long time, 70 years minimum. And then Jeremiah says this. He says, this is what I want. This is God's instruction. I want you to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry, have sons and daughters, Find wives for your sons uh, to give to your daughters in marriage so that they may have sons and daughters. And he says, I want you to increase there, not decrease. In other words, he's saying, don't play it safe. Don't play it safe on, on the outskirts. I want you to move all the way in, and I want you to participate in Babylon and I love this when he says, don't uh, become less, but become more. What he's saying is, I don't want you to become less like God. I want you to become more like God in that place. And my favorite part of this is what he says last. He says, I want you in that place to seek not just the shalom, but the shalom shalom of Babylon. Pray for the shalom shalom of Babylon. That's our mission. Oh, I could dance right now because that's why we exist right now. We exist for Grand Rapids. To seek the shalom, shalom of this city. And to pray for it. And to be right here at the crossroads on Main Street. Rodney Starks, a historian, writes a book called The Rise of Christianity. Because what historians want to know, how did this ragtag movement of Christians 
take their world for Jesus Christ in 200 years. The Roman Empire. And he has a whole chapter on, on these plagues and earthquakes that swept through the empire. In fact, uh, one of the clauses in, as he's describing these plagues is, is he says, not a house. Sometimes not one house in a city would be unaffected. And he, he describes how, how when this happened, the locals just fled. Their minds thinking the gods are angry. We've got to get out of here. They're cursing us. But the Christians stayed. And many risked their lives. Some even lost their lives trying to save lives. So that when the, when the, the sick got better, the plague passed. They looked at these Christians and they said, why did you stay? We're here for the shalom, shalom of this city. That's how the West was won. Or a big reason. This is how they captured the hearts and the minds of the Roman Empire. And what I want us to see is they didn't transform Rome through might or sword or, or seeking power or putting the right elected officials in office. They had power by giving up power, by giving up their lives, by living moment by moment. Not your life for us, but our life for you, like Jesus. Where do you get the passion for this and the power to do this? We're freed up to leave our fortress. We can let go of our comfort. We can stop living to protect and hoard everything we have. We're freed up from needing to fit in our culture. We're freed up to give up our time and our resources and even our lives if we have to. Can't do this because we're good. Can't do this. You can't do this because you're so good. We're not that good. In Rodney Stark's book, this is what described the Christians. It says, many of the Christians, as they nursed and cared for the sick, transferred the death of dying onto themselves, and they died in their place. Do you know what God's done for you? The only reason we can live this way is because we know a God who nursed and cared for our sick, dying souls. And he transferred our death upon himself, and he died in our place. Until we know that, and that burns in our soul. We'll never care. I think this is why uh, Jesus says, Re remember what you received. When you think about all that we have received, we received the love of God. We received the forgiveness of God. We received the healing of God. We received new life in God all through Jesus Christ. And we haven't even gotten to Revelation 21 and 22. But we, even though we are the new Jerusalem right now, we await the eternal city. It's our hope. It's why we can let go and just move in. Augustine, after spending his whole Roman life trying to find life in, in sex and in his career and, and taking from the world, which brought him to a place of complete despair, one day he was wallowing in his despair and he was sitting on this bench and he heard this voice, take up and read. And he looked to his right and there was a book. The book happened to be God's word. He did one of these where he just opened it up. He opened it up to Romans 9 where it says, Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and je jealousy, but put on Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh or gratify its desires. And in that moment, he put that Bible down and gave his heart to Jesus. 
And Augustine is also the one who said, God has made us for himself. And our souls are restless until they rest in him. Do you know the king of the universe? Do you know his peace? Shalom, shalom. It's time to wake up. One of my favorite stories in the gospel is when Jesus comes to this girl, this 12-year-old girl who's dead, and he puts his hand on her, and he says, Talitha kum, which is what every mom and dad would say to their kids every morning, honey, it's time to wake up. And he says, honey, it's time to wake up. Rod, it's time to wake up. Church, it's time to wake up. Let's pray. And God, it's the only way that we can be woken up is through you, Jesus. We're talking about something as great as a resurrection. You raise us from the dead. And God, the way you want to wake up the world is through your woken up people. So God, continue to stir our souls, reawaken our souls to you, to your life and your love and the freedom that we have in you. So we can live on Main Street and live you to a world that desperately desperately need you.